Well, happy Easter. If you know me, you know I typically like to deviate from the typical Easter passages and Easter sermons uh, and, and the, for a lot of reasons, but the biggest one is that Easter is found everywhere in Scripture, right? And I'm going to prove it this morning by having us turn to the book of Job, chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 27, and you can find it on page 429 in the Pew Bibles. Now, if you're familiar at all with this story, all right, uh, you're probably wondering why Job, right? But, but long before this passage was ever a popular contemporary Christian song by Nicole Mullins, this is actually one of the earliest pointers we have to the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And I know it's like Job, I mean, that's, that seems crazy. I mean, isn't Job that story about how God allowed Satan to do some really, really horrible stuff to Job? I mean, like destroyed his family, destroyed his farm, right? I mean, just made life miserable for him. Like, he had boils all over him that he's scraping off with broken pottery. I mean, his, his life was so, so bad that his wife even told him to curse God and die, and while he's there despairing of the fact that he's ever born and just wishing, longing for death, his three friends come along and they start accusing him, right? It's like, the reason why this is happening to you, Job, is because of your sin, right? That story there, that has the hope of the resurrection? And I would say yes. Not only is it one of the earliest pointers we have to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's actually one of the most beautiful, one of the most heartwarming, one of the most soul-satisfying assurances of a future hope in life beyond death, there in the midst of the bleakness of Job. Have you ever noticed that when you go to a jewelry store and you go to look at a diamond, they never put a diamond down on white velvet, right? Because you can't see it. Well, you definitely need one of those telescope things, and not because that's the only kind of diamond that you can afford, but because it's against that light backdrop, you can't see it for what it is. You can barely even identify it. Like, it looks like a broken piece of a little glass shard or something, not like a diamond. And so what the jeweler does is he places it against bold, dark, deep, harsh colors, because that is when the diamond seems most beautiful. The light penetrates and, and permeates the most. It shines the brightest. It looks the most glorious. Against the bleakest, darkest, and seemingly hopeless backdrop that one could experience in this life shines forth one of the brightest and most brilliant reasons to hope. And believe it or not, it's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, you might be here this morning battling with doubts or discouragements or despair. You may be dealing with some type of heartbreaking loss, a disease or disability. You may feel as though your world is coming to an unfair, unjust end, and God seems nowhere to be found. That's what Job was dealing with. That was his experience. That's where he was living. And believe me, I get that feeling of bleakness. That darkness of the soul and how it penetrates and colors everything. And that's ultimately why God laid it on my heart to preach this passage this morning, to give us comfort in the midst of our sorrows. But in the midst of all of his suffering and all of his grief, 
all of his lament, all of his distress, Job still has reason to hope. And so do we. For Job, at that moment, it didn't remove the anguish. It didn't take away all the pain. But it does give the promise of a good and glorious end that serves as a present comfort to us in the midst of all our afflictions, no matter how bleak they might be. So what we're actually going to see this morning from Job 19, verses 25 through 27, is that our Redeemer and our resurrection give reason for rejoicing. And may our hearts rejoice in the resurrection of Christ this morning as we read Job 19, beginning in verse 25. Out of his anguish, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Our Redeemer and our resurrection give reason for rejoicing. So let's break that down by looking first at our Redeemer. It's easy to see from verse 25 that Job is certain that he has a Redeemer, right? He says, my Redeemer. I know my Redeemer lives. And Job is certain this Redeemer would stand for him to testify to or to vindicate his righteousness before God. And I am going to suggest that Job's Redeemer is our Redeemer. But to do that, I have to give some explanation first. Because the historical evidence of this book says that Job lived during the time of the patriarchs. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's between the times of 2200 and 1800 BC, right? So 2,000 years before Jesus ever lived. And so how could Job be speaking of Jesus, right? Sounds like eisegesis, like you're, you're reading Jesus back into the text, and that's, that's a bad thing. And there are many liberal Bible scholars that would say that because Job lived first and this book was written first, he could not possibly be pointing to Jesus. Instead, he has some earthly and immediate uh, interaction in mind, a, a kinsman, a, a family member who would come and would defend his innocence before he died or at least at a minimum, would come and claim his property and his wife when he died. Someone related to him who could take the stand and bear witness to God and to Job's three friends that he's not guilty so that his suffering would come to an end. And we get that, right? We've all been in situations where we've been in pain. We've wanted immediate relief. We just hoped somebody would come to our side, come to our defense, seek to help alleviate us in the midst of our suffering and pain and free us from unfair treatment. But is that really what Job is seeking? Maybe in part. But if you've read through this book, you know that his suffering was immense. It was so immense, it just had his head swirling with grief and despair. He was confused. He felt so wronged. And his friends were only salt to his wounds. And as far as we know, his only living relative that remained was his wife, and she was the one that told him to curse God and die. The only other person, the only other guy that ever shows up in this book besides God is a young, 
theologically minded but totally arrogant man named Elihu who condemns Job and condemns his three friends while extolling God's greatness. So he's not the guy. He's not that redeemer. So who's this redeemer, this deliverer, this one who will testify for Job and free him from his bondage to misery? Who's this guy that he's looking for? Ultimately, Job believes his redeemer is God. That's why he wants to appeal to God. That's why he's confident that he shall see God, God and not another, according to verses 26 and 27. That's why more often than not, when you hear the term redeemer, it's, it's rarely speaking of a kinsman redeemer, but instead it refers to God, that God is our redeemer, that God is our deliverer, that God is the one who, who pays the ransom that our sins deserve, that God is the one that delivers us from slavery. Job's redeemer is God. But even more than that, because Job's redeemer lives, and at the last, Job's redeemer will stand upon the earth, right? But God is a spirit and does not have a body like a man. I mean, our kids have learned that in our catechism. So who is this redeemer who will at the last stand upon the earth? Well, I want you to keep your finger right here and flip over one page to the left to Job sixteen nineteen. Job sixteen nineteen. Here, Job says, even now behold, my witness, he's referring to his redeemer here, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he, the wit this witness on high, would argue the case of a man, being Job, with God. And get this, as a son of man does with his neighbor. So what we have here is a heavenly witness on high who would argue Job's case, mediating for him to God as a son of man. That's Job's redeemer. A heavenly witness, mediator between God and man, a son of man. And Job knows. Job is certain. Job is confident. Job is intimately and assuredly aware that this redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth. 2,000 years before Jesus, Job's Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Well, what does that mean? At the last he will stand upon the earth or upon the dust. What does that mean? Will, will this, does he just mean that this Redeemer is going to swoop in at the very last second and testify for Job before he dies? I don't think so. Because verse 25 starts with the connecting word for, right? And if you know me, you know connecting words are important. Attaches to what comes before it. And so if you just look up a couple of verses to Job 19, verse 23, Job says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And praise God they were, right? Oh, that they, with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Now, why does Job want his words to be recorded in such a way that they could not be wiped away or forgotten? Why does Job want them immortalized in the rock forever like an epitaph on a tomb? It's because Job knows that he's going to die. But Job knows 
that his Redeemer lives. And that one day, at the last, long after Job's skin has been thus destroyed, he will stand upon the earth. Friends, this is no mere family member. This is not some distant future relative that Job is kind of hoping will one day arise from his line. This is not some earthly friend. This is a heavenly witness. This is a great high priest, a mediator between God and man, a son of man who lives and who will stand for him long after Job is dead and gone. Job is looking for more than earthly justification. He's looking for more than immediate relief from his suffering. Job is looking for a heavenly salvation. As one commentator puts it, the straightforward sense is best. The Redeemer would eventually appear, though Job would die, and his stone testimony would stand in silence. He anticipated a Redeemer who lives and acts on behalf of those in need who rely on him. And if we were to take time to read through those first 19 chapters of the book of Job, we would see that Job believes in one true and holy God who created and who sovereignly rules over all things, including life and death, nature and nations, including his own life, who causes or permits good and calamity that we experience in this life. That's why when he received word that his property and his children were gone, struck down by warring tribes, struck down by fire from heaven or this great wind, that he would still, though in deep grief, worship God. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If we kept reading, we would see that Job believes in life beyond death. And that's why he was faithful to pray for his children in chapter 1. That's why he was certain that he would be able to stand before God after he died to plead his innocence. That's why he could say in Job 13, verses 15 and 16, Though God slay me, I will hope in him, and yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. And he knows that he's going to come before him because he believes in God. right? Job believed that God would justly judge sinners, that those who rebel against him or reject him or try to live their lives without him would be eternally separated from God. Job knows that all our days are numbered and determined, but he looks forward to renewal in life after death. And though in this case, Job was a righteous man, blameless and upright fearing God and turning away from evil like no other, Job knew he still needed a redeemer. He still needed someone to live and to plead for him. And you can find all of that in the first 19 chapters by reading the narrative and just Job's responses to his friends. You see, Job's beliefs about God and man and sin and judgment of life after death and salvation are indeed the same as ours, though he lived 4,000 years before we did, because Job's Redeemer is our Redeemer. 
We've just been given the privilege of living at a later time in history so that we know exactly who that Redeemer is. And his name is Jesus. But you know, if we're being completely honest with ourselves, we know that God's not sitting on his throne testifying that in and of ourselves we are blameless and upright, fearing him and turning away from evil. God's not up there saying, have you considered my servant Chet? There's no one like him on the earth. And if he is, it's not because I'm upright and blameless, but for a a lot of other not-so-positive reasons. So if Job needed a redeemer to stand for him, how much more so do we? We too desperately need this living redeemer. There's not a person here or a person who has ever lived who could stand before God on their own righteousness, who could stand before God without need of the forgiveness of sin. We all need that living redeemer. And here's another thing to consider. If Job, in the midst of what seemed to him and to us as unjust and gratuitous suffering, if Job could still find hope and testify to us with immortalized words because God has answered his prayer. If Job could still testify to us that his Redeemer lives and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, how much more can we, because we know who he is and because we know all that he has done and exactly how he has done that, be able to testify to our hope in Christ? We have the history of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and resurrection for our sin. We know how that ransom was paid. We know how he lives and pleads for us. And so let this be an encouragement to you. Because if God can keep and sustain and redeem Job through such calamity, certain in his faith, even though his understanding of the Redeemer was limited, then God will sustain us who have been given the whole story of this Redeemer who lives. You tracking with that? We have been given more than Job. We have more knowledge of who this Redeemer is and what he has done. And if God can sustain Job with the limited knowledge, what can he do for us when we know the whole story? And so Job's Redeemer is our Redeemer. But second, we need to consider our resurrection. Because our Redeemer lives, though we die, we too will live. That's Job's hope here. That's our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But again, some people would look at this and say that Job couldn't be speaking of a bodily resurrection because the Jewish theology of a bodily resurrection wasn't developed during, until the time of the Psalms and Prophets from passages like Isaiah 26, verse 19. that reads, Your dead shall live, the bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Right? That's pretty straightforward as far as an understanding of bodily resurrection. But ironically, these folks who want to say that Job couldn't possibly be referring to that are also the same folks that want to date Job much later to around 500 B.C., which is after the time of the Psalm of Prophets. And so that doesn't make any sense at all, right? Because if it's later... He ought to understand it and be speaking about that even more. 
right? I mean, because if it's a later date, there's more divine revelation. There's a greater theological understanding of the resurrection. But I do believe that Job was written much earlier, about 1500 BC. But even with that in mind, there's still plenty of other scriptural evidence for an early understanding of the hope of bodily resurrection. Now granted, this side of, of Jesus, no one knew exactly how resurrection and the Redeemer was all going to come together, work together in Christ, but that doesn't mean that they didn't believe that God can and would raise the dead. Have you ever thought about Genesis 22? Right? This story of of Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac, right? He's, he's heading up on the mountain. And before he goes, he talks to his servants and he said, listen, we're going to come back. And he said that knowing that he's going up there to sacrifice his son. He knows that he's going to kill him. And yet, because he believed firmly in God's promise that, that his offspring would come through Isaac he was fully assured that God would raise him from the dead. And that's what Hebrews 11 talks about, right? So trusting in that promise that God would raise Isaac from the dead. But if you were to study early Jewish rabbinic arguments for the resurrection, they unpack passages from Exodus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and this passage in Job as early text in addition to the Psalms and the Prophets. And so it's there in the earliest Old Testament writings. And one more little argument for this. Even Jesus in Luke 20 argued from Exodus chapter 3 that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living and not the dead. And so even Jesus interpreted and confirmed from very early Old Testament texts the resurrection of the dead. But let's see what Job has to say for himself. We've already seen that he knows his Redeemer lives and that at the last, at some later future time, he will stand upon the earth bodily. Verse 26, he says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, and he's talking about more than after I've finished scraping my boils off with this pot shard. No, after my skin is long gone, yet in my flesh. Is that the flesh that you've already scraped off? No, in, in my flesh, I shall see God. But to make this really, really clear for us, I'm actually going to read this, this verse by flipping it from end to beginning. And if you do that, this is how it reads. I shall see God in my flesh after my skin has been thus destroyed. And you could go on, right, at the last, when the Redeemer stands upon the earth, because I know that my Redeemer lives. So Job believes that in the end, one day, he will see his Redeemer, his God, as he stands before him in the flesh. He will see God with his own eyes. And he wants to make sure that you heard him correctly because he goes on to say, God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes, that is my physical in-flesh eyes, shall behold and not another, not some stranger, not anyone or anything else. With his own physical eyes, in his flesh, skin and bones, as a man, after his death, he will behold his God. And he makes sure that we get this by stating it three times. 
Yet I shall see, yet in my flesh I shall see God, in whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold for real. And whenever the Old Testament says something in triplicate, holy, 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 this is more than just saying it for effect or for emphasis. It communicates completion, perfection. Job will see God completely and perfectly, body and soul, after his death. So because our Redeemer lives, though we die, we too will live. Now, Job, in his limited knowledge, probably didn't understand completely that the Son of God would come and take on flesh and to live a life as a Son of Man in perfect obedience to God. He probably didn't realize that this Son of Man and Son of God would offer up his life as a sacrifice for dying on a cross uh, to redeem us from all sin, only to rise three days later so that in him we might find the forgiveness of our sin and the hope of eternal life, body and soul in his name to live with him forever. Probably didn't get all of that. But in chapter 14, verses 13 and following, Job does speak of a renewal of life after death and judgment. Job has the hope of a favorable meeting with God after death as a genuine human being. And here he says that because his Redeemer lives, even though he dies, he will see God in the flesh as an embodied soul, completely and perfectly. Jesus would later say to his disciples in John 14, right before his death, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while, and in the, um, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. The resurrection of our Redeemer is the guarantee of our future resurrection. And in that day, we will see him in completeness, in perfection. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it tells those who are living by faith in our Redeemer, Beloved, we are God's children now. But what and what we will be at the last has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is, perfectly, completely. Now, just speaking to you as individuals, I realize that the idea of body and soul, life after death, is a difficult concept to grasp if it were just a fanciful idea. But it's not. Because the God who made all things out of nothing, the God who sustains all life by the word of his power, he upholds the universe. The God who gave life to all things, including you, has told us that he has the power to raise the dead to life. And not only does he have the power, but he will. He told us that in Job 2,000 years before Jesus was born. Jesus said this many, many, many times to us 2,000 years before we were ever born. And in the hearing of this word today, 
he is saying it again so that like Job, we can know for certain that our Redeemer lives and because he lives, though we die, we too will live. And friends, that is a great hope and comfort to us. The resurrection of Christ is at the heart of Christianity. You remove the resurrection and the cross is nothing more than a bloody torture device that has no hope of saving you from your sin. We need Jesus to rise from the grave to know that that penalty for our sin has been satisfied and that we do have a Redeemer who will live and plead for us so that we can stand before our God and see him completely and not be eternally condemned forever. And that's what Jesus' resurrection gives us. The hope that no matter who we are or what we have done, because he lives, we will live. And in the end, we who are in him shall see him face to face. And Job is certain of that. And in Christ, we can be too. A certainty of faith, regardless of what life brings. Because our Redeemer and our resurrection, third, give us reason for rejoicing. Friends, I hope that Job's last line in verse 27 brings you as much comfort as it has brought me. Because Job knows that his Redeemer lives. Job is certain that in his flesh he shall see God. And in a response of both weariness and worship, he says, my heart faints within me. Though our trials may be crushing like Job, we might find ourselves despairing of life itself. But even in such anguish, we have an undying hope. This last statement should be read in two ways, right? As a statement of rejoicing and relief, but also as an acknowledgement of weariness and sorrow. Because Job is saying this in the midst of his grief and agony. In the middle of the assault of his three friends, he is crushed under the weight of pain and sorrow. In this moment, he wants his life to be over. He believes that it would have been better had he never been born. And though he knows and he firmly believes that God is sovereign, God is right, God's judgments are always just, he does not understand why God would allow this to happen to him, and his heart is questioning God. The emotional toil is overwhelming, and at times he is this close to blasphemy. Not because he actually believes that, but because he is so overwhelmed in misery. And his heart is fainting within him. He is far beyond what he is able to handle. But this is also a statement of praise. Though he is weak and weary, however dim it might be, light pours forth from darkness. Because his Redeemer lives. Because he will see God. Because one day, this pain will be over. One day, there will be relief. One day, he will rejoice to behold his God and his heart faints within him. Marvel at that. 
I mean, do you see the extraordinary in the ordinary? Do you see strength in weakness? Do you see glory in the midst of misery? I want you to take hold of that because though there was no one like Job, Job was still a man, still so weak, still so frail, still so breakable apart from the grace and truth of our Redeemer and resurrection so that through, though his life and his trials were crushing, he still had an undying hope. I say that to you so that you don't mistakenly marvel at the strength or greatness of Job because that is not the point. He makes this statement in weakness, but in his pain he still rejoices. Not because of his strength, but because of the hope of our Redeemer and resurrection. I want to make sure that we put aside this notion that if you are truly a Christian, you are going to be happy all the time. Because Job is holding fast in faith and he is ready to die. And the church is full of people who are hurting, who are struggling who are crushed by loss and by grief, by agony and by pain. But if we've got this wrong expectation that everybody's going to just be happy in Jesus all the time, then they've got no place for that, right? So what they do is they hide it rather than expose it in sackcloth and ashes to truly grieve over it the way they need to because they feel ashamed that they feel that way. And so they stuff it and they put on plastic faces like everything is great. Everything is fine. Don't worry about me. I'm happy all the time. When it's a lie. We lie to ourselves and we lie to each other. And they don't say it because they feel like a burden. They feel like a downer, right? And in their sadness, they heap guilt upon guilt upon guilt upon their sadness, and though they are saying nothing to you, they are spiraling further and further and further down into darkness, all the while putting on a happy face for you. Because we bought into that misconception. And if that is our expectation, that we're going to be happy all the time in Jesus, we as a church aren't going to know how to come alongside them, to love them, to help them in the midst of it. Because... We're just like, why aren't you happy in Jesus? You're supposed to be happy in Jesus. I'm happy in Jesus. Why aren't you happy in Jesus? And we miss the point. We might even be like Job's wife or Job's friends, heaping curses and insults when their heart is fainting. <clears throat> I feel like just now I've been coming out of a battle with depression that's been going on for three years. And my wife would say it's been longer than that. And I don't disagree with her. I'm just talking about for the last three years, it has gotten to places where it was inconsolable and incapacitating and at times downright scary. But I'm thankful that though my heart was fainting within me, my Redeemer lives. And he held me fast with the assurance that one day I would see him face to face. And friends, that too is rejoicing. 
We've got to have categories for that. We need to study guys like William Cooper and his relationship with John Newton. Because William Cooper battled his entire life with depression. And yet he wrote some of the most beautiful hymns to God. Job, in his misery, was rejoicing. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and rising from the dead is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This Passion Week that we have been celebrating is all about hope in suffering. And if you read Christian biographies, you'll see pain and confusion and calamity and loss and yet joy. Even in the midst of darkness and despair, in doubt, in disease, in destruction, and in death, there can be rejoicing because there is reason for rejoicing. And so if you find yourself today in mourning, that you're grieving loss, facing trials, feeling pain, there is hope. Maybe you feel like Death is approaching. Are you just feeling the groans of old age? I just played basketball against Layden's team in a father-son game last night for like two hours. I'm feeling old age. Maybe your soul is sad and you don't even know why. Maybe your pain is so intense that the idea of scraping boils off of your skin with a broken piece of pottery sounds pleasant in comparison to how much you are aching. You may feel as though life is crushing, maybe for no particular reason why. You don't even know, but it just feels crushing. Even so, we have an undying, heart-fainting hope. Or perhaps you feel crushed by the weight of sin. You get why Job would be troubled, but you know that he's getting what you deserve and you just feel like there's no victory, there's no relief from your sin. Well, friends, the fact that our Redeemer lives is an undying hope for you too. Because Jesus died once for all, for all sin, not every sin, but that sin that I'm dealing with right now, or, or that one, or that one, or that one, but every sin. And Jesus rose from the grave. And if he were still dead, then the ransom of sin remains unpaid. And that would be great reason for fear and for misery. But because he lives, there is freedom from fear and sin and shame. His death was enough to cover all of your sin. His resurrection proves that you too can have redemption and eternal life in his name. He is making all things new. And the first step towards freedom is knowing that your Redeemer lives and believing that based upon his perfect sacrifice for you, you shall see God. Not because of you, but because of him. And as you behold him, our living Redeemer, you will become more like him from one degree of glory to another. That hope will give life to what has been broken, either by suffering or by sin. That's the hope of the resurrection of our Redeemer. And that is a hope that is worth heart-fainting praise.
So no matter what trial may be crushing you this morning, we have an undying hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So take heart, though it may be fainting within you, your joy will come. Even if it comes at the last, when finally you see Jesus face to face, it will come. And so take hope, because our Redeemer and our resurrection give us reason for rejoicing. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you so much for this promise, this assurance that you give us from one of the earliest recorded people we have in the Old Testament and one of the earliest writings we have in the Old Testament of your unfailing promise to redeem, to restore, to forgive through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Lord, I pray that that we would not stop at just hearing a message, but that we would believe in our hearts that he lives and that we shall see him, him and not another, and that that would overwhelm us, even in the midst of our pain and sorrow or confusion, that it would, it would give us this undying hope God, there are many times where we confess our hearts faint within us for one reason or another. And we, Lord, we pray that that weariness would turn to worship as we celebrate our risen Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.